From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week. We do it via Zoom since the pandemic hit in March 2020. This is Cade Massey hosting with my longtime collaborators, good buddies, Shane Jensen and Eric Bradlow. Adi Weiner is not with us this week. He'll be back. He's got some Audi Weiner things to do this week. We usually, in the last year and a half, have started with COVID in the first quarter. We tackled it because it's interesting and challenging statistically. It's in the news. It affects our lives. It affected our sports lives. And we found in the year and a half, it just helped us make sense of the world. We are going to take a, a, a little diversion, digression from that. Occasionally, we've had these digressions to other stories in the news. Last year, for the first time, we talked to some guys working out in the American West fighting fires, wildfires that are so much trouble out there, and using Moneyball tactics to do it. Fascinating conversation. When we, when we talked to them for the first time, we thought we were going to go for a quarter. We ended up going for a full hour because we couldn't quite stop it. And we thought it was time to check back in with them again. So in this first quarter, we're delighted to welcome back to the show. Matt Thompson and Kit O'Connor. Matt is a PhD and research forester at the USDA Forest Service. Kit is also with the USDA Forest Service. He's a research ecologist. These guys work out in the Rocky Mountains and they have been on the front lines, not just of firefighting, but they've been on the front lines of this Moneyball movement. And we're not kind of waving our hands at Moneyball. They literally call it Moneyball for Fire. And it came initially out of a class that I think Matt took with um, at MIT. And so it's just fascinating to hear the challenges that they face and how much they echo the challenges that are faced in sports organizations around the world. Matt, Kit, great to see you guys. Welcome back. Thanks for having us, Kate. Good to be here. Yeah, thank you all for bringing us onto the show again. Absolutely. And Kit, we know you've been doing some other stuff. You've been got some paternity leave. You've got family Family business, we appreciate you carving out some time for us. Guys, uh, what can you tell us? We'll, we'll back up and cover some of the general territory in a second, but what can you tell us about what's going on with analytics and firefighting like right now, like today? What does that, what is that, that frontier look like where Moneyball approaches are changing the way fires are fought? Well, I can start us off. I, I think one of the interesting stories here is that like we talked about last time, we're starting to deploy a lot of these more advanced analytics that segue away from not just behaving, how the fire might behave uh, to what you might do about that. So it's really trying to get into that management space, that decision space, that opportunity space. And so back in 2017, we had started to deploy as an agency, this new initiative called the Risk Management Assistance Program. It was delivered to it was intended to be delivered to those largest, longest duration, most complex, most highly visible incidents that you frequently see on the news, like we're hearing about in California right now, for example. Fast forward to 2021, we've now seen these analytics be deployed on more than 110 fires and counting. We still have weeks, if not months, of of fire ahead of us. And so what these uh, models are intended to do is, in large part, a brainchild of what Kit came up with. So Kit, tell us what they do. Okay, yeah, and a quick uh, point of clarity, that's 110 fires this fire season. Um, so this is is really, really picking up steam. Well, to be clear, and it was just few, four years ago, it was like 11. You, you deployed these tools on like 11 of these things. Okay. Absolutely. And yes. it's not just because there are more fires, it's because there's more take up of the models. People are actually using them. 
Yes, absolutely. There's more demand and there's more availability. It's that combination of things and more familiarity and acceptance of, okay. of a lot of these tools. Um, so I can give you a really quick snapshot of where we are right now, but that doesn't really tell you where we're going. And I'll try to summarize that as quickly as I can um, yeah. before we get into uh, some some more poignant discussions of the fire management structure in and of itself that I think uh, Matt could really shed some really cool light on as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So where we are right now um, is we have kind of a group of, of, of folks through RMA, uh, Risk Management Assistance, as, as Matt mentioned, um, who are ideally pre-positioning as much information as possible on things like um, where is the highest probability of success for containing a fire in a specific location on a landscape on average? Um, and then what does the fire responder safety environment look like? Uh, specifically where uh, is fire behavior something to be concerned about, where is accessibility or, or other natural hazards an issue. Uh, and more recently, we've just um, updated a new layer that's uh, the snag hazard layer, uh, because tree strikes are actually in the top five fatality causing um, um, incidents that happen on fires, especially for fire responders. So we now are, are working on, on that as well. Hold on, just be what is tree strike? I would have thought tree strikes was lightning hitting something, but this is something different. These are these are trees falling over and injuring or killing a firefighter or somebody. So you're, mo you're modeling that? Absolutely, uh, and it's and it's actually a combination of remote sensing and modeling, a whole series of different components that go into it. Mm -hmm. So we're actually looking at the models tell us what should be there, and then the remote remote sensing tells us what has died in the last ten years. Uh, and so what's standing dead out of what's there? And so what, what do we need to be concerned about? Wow. Okay. So let me just recap real quickly. One of the, one of the main decisions the folks who fight these fires face is where, like how to, where to take a stand or where to put a line in or where to deploy equipment. And at the, at the first layer, what you guys are saying is these would be good places to be. Given the topology and the dryness and the availability of fuel, these are good places to make, take those stands. But then you're saying, well, there are also other layers, though. You've got to get those guys in and out. And so you've got to have access. And, and, and then you've got a third layer on top of that, which is you've got to consider their safety. And these, these tree strikes are one of the main ways they get hurt. And so you've got a third layer. And your decision then is going to depend on all these factors and others, I'm sure. You've got some kind of optimization that's going to take all of these inputs and say, okay, given the circumstances, this is where you should take us. Do I have it roughly right? Before you answer, kid, I just want to add one thing exactly on this topic. There, you can imagine there being multiple outcomes. Like this is where you should take a stand to save the most people. This is where you should take a stand to save the most homes. This is where you should take a stand to save the most acreage. Is that also, as you're thinking about optimization, is that part of it too? 100%. And, and a, a key part of this risk management assistance is not only that we're providing better informational content, we're actually providing a process, a more structured process to go about evaluating those risk-risk trade-offs. So like literally we have a matrix that we will walk through, especially for these you know, more complex, longer duration incidents where you want to take the time to come up with a very deliberate risk-informed strategy. Well, you'll walk through and you'll say under a given course of action, the strategical alternative, what are the risks to communities? What are the risks to the ecological assets and resources out there? What are the risks to the firefighters? How do we adapt and modify and change? And if that fails, what's our contingency? What are the risks associated with that? So it's really trying to bring, I'm not quite sure we're at the, at, at the step of uh, optimizing over this yet, but we're at least trying to bring in some kind of structured decision-making, structured risk assessment ideas into the room. 
And that, yeah, that and sounds to get- like a little bit like pregame strategy. And um, and you and you also mentioned you're you're deploying this information ahead of time, like you're getting it out in May before fire season. How good are you guys at knowing where these things are going to be? So it's one thing to have a pregame strategy. I know it's going to come in this area and it's going to come down that gulch. And I'll, this is how I'll do it versus maybe there, maybe 20 miles to the Northeast. You're having these pregames. How precise can they be? How good are y'all at knowing, well, every year we have something in this general area or, or not? Well, so there's two parts to that. Uh, first of all, to get to Eric's question about those trade-offs inherent with every one of these decisions is predating my time with the Forest Service and really focusing on, on Matt and, and other people who, who predate me with some of this work is building up these spatial data sets of what we care about on the landscape. Where do people live? Uh, where the, the values that, that cannot be negatively impacted because if you knock out power in this location, you're gonna cut off power to to a city of 4 million and they won't have air conditioning in the middle of summer. Um, So it's kind of mapping out all of these things that could be affected by fire so that you have the ability to make that informed decision. Uh, If you've got to direct that fire, you got to corral it somewhere, get it away from these things. These are not places where you want to be funneling fire. Mm -hmm. Uh, To that second point of how accurately can we predict where that fire is likely to go? um, That's also something that that, uh, our group has actually built on top of some some pioneering work that came out of the fire lab originally uh, here in Missoula. Mm-hmm. Um, the fire spread probability FS Pro program actually gives you a sense of given today's forecast, where the fire is sitting, what the fuel profile looks like, where that fire is headed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it gives you basically a probabilistic surface of high probability, it's gonna make it to here. Uh, lower probability is gonna make it out to here. Very low probability is gonna take on this whole area. Um, so we use that. Um, but then we inform it with a whole bunch of other metrics uh, Mm -hmm. to allow us to really hopefully hone that in on where it's likely headed. Um, But that's always uh, a lot of uncertainty. Um, And so, yeah. So that when you talk about it in those terms, Kit, it sure does sound like the analytics we see in other sports. And I'm curious to hear a little bit more on the language, this money ball language. You guys started talking about it, money, money ball for fire. And then you've even written academic papers where you draw the connections out. Can you tell us why this, in your mind, this is Moneyball? Like, what makes this Moneyball? So the the first and probably most obvious connection is just leveraging advanced data and statistical analysis and machine learning and other, just to make more data-driven decisions. Um, as we talked about last time, me using the phrase data-driven decision-making didn't come over nearly as well as just saying Moneyball for fire. That in and of itself, just <laughs> you, you said it in your tweet, right? The power of analogy, just language and how you go about communicating really matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, second, I think in, in, a, in a different point, one of the kind of core elements of that story arc was just about addressing the organizational and the cultural barriers to a system that is used to operating largely on the basis of gut and intuition. And so how do you deconstruct those barriers? How do you find the right sort of translators? And in our case, we've been very successful at having people who used to be themselves firefighters. If I go into a room and say, hey, you guys should really think about using these analytics, it's okay, great. Uh, A member of our team who was a hotshot for seven years walks into the room and says the exact same thing word for word, and they're like, okay, Okay, I yeah, I can see that. Matt, I um, totally understand that. But now my question is, how do you find that seven-year veteran hotshot who happens to be open to your data? Who are those people? Well, we have a couple, and we're always recruiting. That's right. And the more firefighters have PhDs than you would think. I'll leave it at that. Oh, interesting. Okay. 
Um, yeah, th- is that I because think- they're volu- they're volunteer firefighters and they're they're, they're it's not their full time job or how does that work? I think a lot of them go back to school after doing this for a couple of years. I see. Okay. Okay. It's all, yeah, very much. It's a young person's job. I for for a large portion of the population of firefighters, they move on to other things typically. Yeah, but there must be a crusty older guy who's actually deploying these people, and he's less likely to be open to this stuff, right? I mean, I, so talk just a little bit more about you know, give us a little bit more from what you've learned, because this is such a common battle. It's battle. It's a common battle in sports, but it's also a common battle in, in medicine and all kinds of fields. And what just to kind of, and, and to feed off that sports analogy with the, the reason Moneyball was kind of compelling and convinced so many crusty old guys eventually is that you had teams like Oakland that were employing money, like analytic strategies, and they were doing better than teams that were not there was kind of this competition whereas in your domain obviously it's got to be harder to kind of you know it's not like you have some competing non-analytics firefighting team that's doing demonstrably worse or something like that so maybe you can talk a little bit about how you kind of convince you know people who aren't open to analytics that what you're doing is superior to what you was being done previously yeah I think that last point is is really a microcosm of the broader set of challenges. You know, you hear the phrase competitive edge a lot, but what does that really mean in this context? Or as we talked about last time, even what we measure and describe in terms of performance is, is really challenging. So there, it's not necessarily the case that we can say, hey, so-and-so is using these and look how much better he or she is doing than you. Um, it, it, it really, it's, I mean, it's a process of, of diffusion of innovation for lack of a better phrase, but um, it's one person at a time seeing the value and how it changes the nature of the conversation they're having. So mm-hmm. as an example, there was a fire in Montana this year where there was a whole bunch of different you know, stakeholders and actors involved from different, you know, different landowners and different agencies. And they had some very different uh, rationales for why they would want to do a different strategy. And by leveraging these analytics, they were able to say, hey, look, one of those strategies, one of those options you're proposing would have us put people into an area with very low accessibility. If something were to go wrong with very limited ability to get them out, we also use layers of like evacuation time, for example, where the snag hazard is very high, where the suppression difficulty is very high. And it's not entirely clear to us what we would be buying. So, you know, I think what we're beginning to see is that it changes the quality of the conversation. And then that changes the way they go about making their and justifying their strategic decision. But we're not at a point, frankly, where we can point to and say the performance on this fire was 13% greater than that fire because they had these analytics. Mm -hmm. You're you're probably having some of these guys now come to you to ask for information in those conversations. What you're characterizing is we're weighing these trade-offs and people weigh them differently. And so they have a disagreement on which way to fight this thing. And we're adding new information. And in some cases, that information is going to privilege one side or the other. And if it's been a stalemate beforehand, that might help push forward the conversation. It must be that in other places, people are like, well, can you, can you give me data on accessibility or can you give me data on these snag hazards that we just haven't had before? Are you getting that kind of demand where people want it? They've, they've heard you use it somewhere else, or maybe they had it on another fire and they don't have it here, so they're asking you for it. Absolutely. We've seen that. Um, there are a couple of examples from the 2020 fire season with that unprecedented series of fires in Colorado and Utah, mm-hmm. where we had these large fires started on uh, BLM or state or other private lands. And uh, in the past, uh, our group has, has had a bit of a focus really just on these forest service lands. 
But because these analytics can now be produced wall to wall across all ownerships and at sometimes continental scales, depending on the, the uh, specific product, um, there's no reason to limit the information flow. Um, and so what we've actually seen now is as we get into these interagency fires uh, that absolutely they are, they've seen it on a different fire and they're asking for it for their mm -hmm. backyard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, Matt, let me ask you, um, how would you measure, like, you know, since we're going to do the Moneyball analogy, like, let's go back to the original baseball and, like, there's a box score. What are the metrics? What does the box score look like? You just mentioned how many big fires there are. But are there, like, you know, I'm making this up, area covered, intensity of the fire? I don't know. What does the scorecard look like for Moneyball for fire? Well, Eric, you already alluded to a lot of the most common ones. Um, area burned is a classic one. There's a lot of reasons why that's not a very compelling metric. Um, structure loss or, you know, ecological impacts. So we do measure the severity of the fire. Um, what we're kind of arguing is that there's, there's additional lenses that we want to look at in terms of like the, the management, the operations and the performance. And so at a fine scale, at a more tactical level, we want to know where did you build line? Um, where did you build containment features? How many of those ever engaged the fire? Now, some may not because they were intended to be a contingency strategy if you had to fall back. But of those that engaged the fire, how many actually engaged and held or at least checked the spread of the fires and because you were doing it intentionally just to buy yourself some time? So mm -hmm. we kind of want to get the, those, those operational effectiveness measures. Where were the air tankers dropping retardant and, and water? And how long did it slow the fire down for? Or did it serve as an effective kind of break and, and, and contain the fire? So... We're making, we're making some progress in, in those areas. I think another kind of interesting angle is just looking at how many resources, and by that I mean personnel and equipment, were actually deployed to these fires. So that is a measure of kind of strain on the response system. There's a, there's a fixed number of kind of people who are qualified and trained to go out and do this. That's why sometimes we're calling in resources from Australia, from Mexico, from Quebec. We, we find ourselves at points kind of reaching, reaching the limits of that system. And what that means is you may have fatigue, you may have burnout, you kind of have issues with the health and well-being of these folks, but you also have resources that are unavailable to go to other fires. So as, as one example, the Dixie fire, this is, you know, it will become, uh, it already is the largest fire in, in California state history and possibly the U.S. in terms of recorded history. And so that is what's making the news, right? It's a quote unquote mega fire. Um, however, it also at this point is about 580 plus million dollars in suppression. That oh one my. fire is more than the Forest Service spent in across all of its fires just about oh. 15 years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. At one point, it had over 6,500 people assigned to it, which was more than a quarter of all personnel assigned to any to all fires in the entire system at that point mm -hmm. in time. Mm -hmm. So just like there's these extreme events that are now from a systemic perspective, like, are we prepared for what that looks like? And so mm -hmm. I think that's another kind of domain we could head into in terms of a box score, just how many resources, how long were they there? What was the uh, proportional effect of that? And just in terms of the overall response capacity of the system. It's a, it's a super interesting sh shift or elaboration for you guys to move from modeling fire to modeling like the organizational response to fire and looking for efficiencies and effectiveness and improvements in what you control. You know, you don't really control so much, at least much less control over the fire. You have more control over how you respond to it. And your efforts are shifting 
Um, I can hear even in the way you're talking about it, that it's that the that the momentum is increasing. Looking at operational effectiveness, organizational effectiveness. We're talking to Matt Thompson. Matt is a PhD and and a research forester at the USDA Forest Service. And Kit O'Connor, Kit's a research ecologist, also with the USDA Forest Service. Guys, a lot of talk in recent months has been how the conditions the fires are finding out there, and you're and you're fighting have changed and they're kind of your your models depend on history you've got this phenomenal history and it's allowed you to build all these great models but now it what what it, it sounds like the conditions are kind of falling outside of history which challenges your model can you talk about and this is always an interesting question for modelers is is the world changing is it stationary my my model is only as good as history as long as it's been stationary but the world's changing i've got to do something different it's a ubiquitous problem in modeling so what's going on right now on that front for you guys? How are you, when it's so clear that history doesn't match the current conditions, what do you do with your models? Kit. Okay, that's, that's exactly the problem that, that we would have expected to face now, now that we are seeing these fires get this big. And actually what we're doing is we're borrowing a page from the hydrology literature. Uh, you may have heard when, they talked to, when we, there was talk in 2012 to 2015, the huge drought in California. We hadn't seen a drought like that in 450 years. Well, that means that it has happened before. It's just that it was really rare and it's no longer rare. And so when we start to look at these large fires, one of the things that we see is that to get big, they have to have these periods of extreme growth. But it's not the entire time that fire is burning that it's in that phase. Uh, oftentimes these fires take two, three months to burn. And if they're burning for that period of time, those massive growth periods account for maybe five days, six days. So those are the periods that we care about. Um, and unfortunately, the analytics that we built a lot of our models on in the past have been looking at kind of the final fire perimeter. How, how do they catch that fire in the end? And we've kind of blown through all those massive growth periods to understand what were the conditions that allowed that thing to get as big as it got. And so where we're going now, uh, the excitement that we're, that we're kind of generating now, my new direction is really trying to go back and dissect to capture what was happening during those major growth periods during this 20 years of fire that we have so that we can understand where success happened even under extreme conditions um, or where we really absolutely had zero probability of success um, and if so, where to fall back to, to get those resources out of the way or to send those resources elsewhere where they can be effective. It's interesting. I was, I was, I had the exact opposite intuition that, okay, if you know when the big, um, the big growth is, then that's where you go in and fight. And you're like, well, sometimes yes, sometimes no. <laughs> sometimes that means you get out of the way and reallocate somewhere else. Super interesting. So I, yeah, I have a two-part question here, but um, let me make a re, uh, connection to COVID, which is something we also talk about uh, a lot on our show and obviously in the last 18 to 20 months. I'm going to ask a strange question. You guys just correct my stupidity here. Is there every, ever a point where we could get to forest fire herd immunity, where in some sense we've done such a horrible, you know, global warming, the places that are going to get burned, they've burned. And so maybe we'll get to a place where it's not that big a deal anymore. So, yeah, absolutely. And what's funny is that uh, that's how it used to be. Um, there used to be herd immunity to fires in the West because it was a fire limited system. That means fire was the control on the next fire. 
um, by putting our human footprint down and, and basically saying, we don't tolerate fire here or here, or in fact, almost anywhere, we've removed the herd immunity of the landscape and it's no longer fire adapted in many, many places. Um, but now with climate change, um, it's overpowering our ability to stop fires. And yes, we are seeing those fire fire feedbacks create this herd immunity idea, um, certainly in the Sierra of California um, and on other landscapes um, throughout the West where these fires are running into each other and they're the only reliable holding feature sometimes is a recent burn scar. Um, and that, was my, that was my question. Good. Yeah. My question wasn't as stupid as I sounded. I thought you were going to say like, no, you can't get burn immunity or I called it herd immunity. You can't get burn immunity from fires, but maybe you can. I guess you can. Well, the challenge too is you, oftentimes those aren't safe places to put people. And so mm -hmm. you kind of have to place your bets that you're, you got a massive snag field and hopefully that massive snag field is going to stop the fire. Um, and it depends. Uh, we're actually, one of the cool things we're picking up with our modeling is we're getting a sense of how long that burn scar is functional as a control feature yep. before it's reburnable. Mm -hmm. um, Let me ask another related yeah. question. If you guys, let's imagine the government today decided to take uh, the forestry as serious as many of us believe it should. And someone said, you can have an extra, I'm making up a number. I don't know if this is a big number for you, an extra billion dollars. I don't know if it's 1 billion, 10 billion, whatever the number is. Would you spend it on proactive fire prevention or reactive fire prevention? Which would you do? Uh, well, thanks, thanks for the softball. Uh, the answer is proactive <laughs> fire prevention. Uh, no, I just didn't. I assumed, so, but I don't know. I mean, and, and you know, I'm just, uh, please go, Matt. I'm, I'm interested in well, the answer. Here, here's, why I, well, here's why I would think that might be especially interesting. I don't know how much is baked. By the, by the time we've developed and built homes, into the forest. I don't know how much discretion you have on letting things burn. I mean, back in the day when there were no homes, if you want to let it burn a certain way, just let it burn. But now you must be constrained a great deal. So I, I, anyway, that's one of the reasons that's, that's interesting to the, to the, to the distant naive observer, Matt. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. I think, well, so right now there's a whole bunch of uh, pending legislation that does exactly that. A uh, couple more zeros actually. And a lot of it is for the, the, the workforce, the, the fire management workforce that will have to be responding. And, and so, you know, we would argue that a lot of those resources could be directed towards that pre-positioning, that scenario-based planning. In fact, some of the stuff that Kit and I co-developed right now has an earmark for $100 million in the infrastructure bill that the Senate has. Um, but there's a lot more that has to go towards implementation. So the proactive nature of that implementation would be doing the sort of vegetative removal and, and fuel treatment and forest restoration critically, but also really critically is, is the controlled burning. And so there's hundreds of millions of dollars, again, in the you know, pending legislation that would be deployed exactly to recreate those conditions where fire can be not only a restorative, because it has all sorts of cultural and ecological benefits, but it's a, it, it creates those landscapes where they have the, those self-limiting features. Okay, so hold on. If, if it, we didn't talk about this and we haven't thought about this, we haven't thought about this. So if your maps are so useful for fire, fighting fires, they must be super useful on deciding where to do control burns. 100%. And, and that wasn't something they used to have access to. I mean, just folks burning what they thought made sense. That's an exciting place to deploy them, yes? Yeah, and in fact, we have, there's a whole bunch of really interesting use cases. And one of the great things, Kit and I were talking about this earlier today, is people are taking this and taking in directions that we didn't even conceive of. There's new uh -huh. use cases, there's more ingenuity 
and exactly that. There's a forest in southwestern Colorado that is doing exactly that. They're trying to integrate a lot of these pre-fire planning tools to design what we call burn blocks. And so they already had burn blocks planned. This is We're not reinventing any wheels here. People have always been trying to do this sort of, where are you going to contain the fire? What is your What are your options? But you know, doing it in a more kind of analytically driven and structured way. And so, yeah, we're using uh, these pre-fire pre-fire planning tools as potential burn blocks. Mm-hmm. Kate, Kate, also to your point of kind of this embedded hazard that's out there on the landscape now with with people living out there. Um, there's the kind of the federal incentive, the components that we're working with, but now we're actually seeing state legislators take this on. Like Oregon has a a relatively contentious new policy that says you have to harden your home. Um, and it's what, does it not mean? Some, what does it mean, harden your home? Exactly. That's it. So I'll, yeah, I'll go into that. So hardening your home is basically making it so that it could tolerate a fire burning up almost to it. Um, and so that means um, a steel roof or a tin roof um, that won't catch fire and then removing all of the vegetation, what's called the home ignition zone. Um, not having you know, wood piled up against your house, not having uh, pressurized gas for your barbecue up against the house, um, and then just having kind of a defensible space around the actual building. Mm-hmm. And we saw that in some of those catastrophic fires in Oregon is the people that, that had done that in advance, their homes were completely unscathed, whereas their neighbors were burned to the ground. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay, so it's good to know that there are steps that can be taken both at the federal policy level, at the state level, at the individual level, there are mitigations that can be taken. Guys, in the time we have remaining, can you talk a little bit about how the models are being used in the face of these big fires and these extreme conditions? It feels like there are like real-time tweaks and, and shifts to the model being made to accommodate these conditions. Is that right? That's really hard to do from a modeling perspective. And we're always kind of arguing about, is it okay to put your finger on the scale here? Is it okay to assume that the world is different now so I can ooch that parameter value up? Is, is this the way they're being used given you're really, at the, you're really at the frontier of the data and so you're at the frontier of the model? Is that how, they're, is that how guys are using them in the field? Yeah, and so that's something where I was really nervous early on with people taking these and then combining them with new information or kind of their own assumptions, right? right. And then creating something new to help decision makers with what they think is something better. Uh, so I was really concerned about my name being attached to you know, some part of this. <laughs> oh, Kit, I'm sorry. In. I thought you were concerned about the health of the forest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, so what ended up happening was uh, some amazing use cases coming from the 2020 fire season where we had, uh, there's this whole cadre of really experienced um, fire analysts that have come up you know, through 30 years of, of as these software kind of come online. Mm-hmm. And um, they're, they're just, one of their jobs is to integrate the latest and greatest with what they already know. Um, and so what we've seen is uh, these people are taking these analytics, they're not relying on them solely. They know that it's a model, it's flawed at some level, but they're combining with other things. And so if it gives them kind of a relative sense of what's better and what's worse, mm-hmm. then what they'll do is they'll actually watch the fire as it's burning. And they'll see, well, at this threshold, the model says it, or the model said one thing and it held. Okay, let's find that same threshold everywhere else in this landscape. And wow. lo and behold, it's holding at that threshold. Um, and, and so the model said, you know, there was a, uh, some, some probability uh, under these specific conditions, and that actually is translating in real time uh, to improve decision making. And it's not something I would have done as a modeler because I couldn't have gotten it published. I would have been skewered by my reviewers. <laughs> 
but these folks don't have those limitations. Um, and, and it's just information. They're not telling somebody what to do. They're yeah. saying this looks better than that. Kit, that's amazing. And back to the COVID connections, that sounds like some of the, you know, modeling what was happening with COVID was really hard and, and everybody did poorly, but some did better than others. And some of the best were just working with the data. There were so many data available that if you were making forecast, watching how you did, tweaking your model in response to that feedback, making another forecast and repeating it, repeating it every week, repeating it every two weeks, you could actually get a lot better. And that's exactly what I'm hearing you say. It's like, you're, you got guys out there with the model and it says, this is going to happen. They watch whether it happens or not. And then it either validates or disconfirms what they're doing and they tweak and go on. That frequency of data, that's a great learning environment. If you're out there collecting it and trying to modify things as you go. Super, super interesting. Yeah, and um, if I could piggyback just real, real quickly on the idea of kind of this notion of being adaptive as, as the incident evolves, kind of again, from that systemic perspective, uh, what we're also seeing happen now is people relying on these analytics to make kind of more agile and adaptive kind of deployment decisions. So we have within the system kind of the standard way resources are mobilized, and then they come for a seven or a 14 or in some cases longer assignment. But we're also seeing the use of like surge capacity resources, like a strike team that we make a request that we want these exact number of resources arriving on this day for five burn periods because we have this window of containment informed by some of these analytics that that's going to be our opportunity to be successful. And so I think there's this interesting kind of adaptive, the management is now being more time responsive because we're getting better updates to, you know, when containment is more or less. Super, super interesting guys. We could talk to you all day, all day about this stuff. Thank you for making the time for us. We hate to take you away from the valuable work you're doing, but it's, it's helpful to us to hear what's going on out there. We wish you the best with all that you're doing out there. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Thank Appreciate the opportunity. You bet. Matt Thompson, PhD and research forester at the USDA Forest Service. And Kit O'Connor, also with the USDA Forest Service. Kit is a research ecologist. Second time to have these guys on the show. I'm sure we'll talk to them more down the road. That has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. You can jump in here and join us. Cade Massey hosts along with Shane and Eric. Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, longtime co-host of Wharton Moneyball. We love to hear from you. Join us via Twitter at WMoneyball. At WMoneyball is our handle on Twitter. We take your questions, comments, suggestions, complaints, whatever you got at WMoneyball. Great way to get in touch with us. Also, we follow our guests and tweet periodically out there. If you would rather email, if you're old school that way, you'd rather email, we can be reached that way too. Moneyball at wharton.upen.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upen.edu. It's our mailbag. We read everything you send and we get as much as we can on air to talk about it. So another way to reach out to us. Guys, we're just off the conversation with the Moneyball for Fire guys. Do we, I mean, look, we have a lot of great guests and we can't distinguish the inner tier, but the inner tier, the hall of fame, Eric always talks about first, what is it? First ring, inner ring? First tier, second tier. First tier hall of fame guests. Man, I put those guys in first tier. It's such a cool kind of like, you know, spread of like, you know, analytics basically into an industry that's obviously hugely important. It's like in the news, like essentially every every day these days and yeah no it's 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 pretty inspiring 
So um, also inspiring the U.S. performance at Whistling Straits over the weekend. I mean, 19-9, I mean, it's a, the, the biggest spread since Europe was folded into the Ryder Cup in the late 70s, the biggest yep. spread. 18 and a half had been the record, and the U.S. had been on the short end of that twice in the last 20 years, but they got to 19-9. Curious whether you guys consume much of this. What was your reaction to it all? Yeah, I watched almost every minute of it. Almost every one. Um, You're so dependable for that, Eric. <laughs> no, but I mean, well, I mean, that college football, I watched that too. I watched NFL, lots of stuff on. But this is a big deal. Um, look, the re- here's, here's what it, the first thing it showed me. Ranking systems kind of, they're not perfect, but they matter. Like the number one player in the world is John Rahm, and he played tremendously well. And, and he's deservedly the number one. I think the U.S. had the number two through 10 players in the world on their team. So, and now the Europeans are coming up with, you know, guys that are pretty good. Matt Fitzpatrick, he's ranked 73 in the world. Well, 73 is not four. And so when 73 plays four, four is probably going to beat 73. And when three and five team together against 15 and 37, three and five are probably going to beat 15 and 37. So the first thing it showed me is that there is at least a fair amount of discrimination in the golf ranking system, meaning on paper, based on the ranking system, the U.S. had the much better team, and it showed. For, for that was co- the first thing. Co- kind of context, is: do you feel like it's – is that differential in rankings like high, higher – it sounds like it's high, it was higher this time around. The greatest I've ever seen. It, it, it was called the greatest mismatch on paper. Before okay. this is even before the event. Like if you take the sum of the rankings, the difference in the sums of the rankings, it was the greatest that there'd ever been. And there yeah. are two different factors going on there. One is where is the talent right now in the world? And the U.S. just happens to be in a relatively good position versus Europe right now. But then there's also the selection process uh, by which gonna, yep. the U.S. team um, is comprised. And they've tweaked that over the years. And you could imagine or this is this is so close to a conversation we have all the time. You can think about it like seeding the playoff. On what basis are you picking four teams for the, for the college football playoff? You can do largely one of two ways. You can say, if we're going to predict who's going to perform best, that's one model. Or we can say who has done best in the past year or who's most deserving in the past year. That's a different model. And historically, this has changed a number of times, but historically, it's been a little bit backwards looking, had a long tail, two-year window, and you don't necessarily end up with the best golfers at the moment. And I don't know all the details, actually, but I know that they've tweaked this over time. And one of the results was it's more on the current predictive side than it used to be. So let me, I, I, can, I think I know most of the details. So historically, there's, let's first start with the basics just for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball that don't know. The Ryder Cup has 12 players on each squad. And just to be clear, it's U.S. versus Europe. So let's say there's a great Australian player, like, for example, the great Adam Scott. He's not as great anymore, but he won the Masters, et cetera. He's not on the team. It's U.S. versus Europe. So let's start with that. No Australian golfers are on the team. Twelve on each side. It used to be, at least for the U.S. side, eight people would automatically qualify based on two years of data and the ranking system. That player could have played great 
18 months ago, hasn't made a top 10 in five months, that person's on the team. So they switched it to six players automatically qualify. They cut the date down under which the points count. It's based on the last year. And then Steve Stricker, the captain, who they're called captains picks the other six, essentially, he, except for one person, Patrick Reed, who could have made it if he hadn't, but he's a controversial player, he picked by the rankings. So that was his choice. He could have picked, for example, first, per- first time in like 30 years he wasn't on the team, Phil Mickelson. Phil Mickelson won the PGA this year, but Phil Mickelson's 51 years old, and Phil Mickelson's not better than Xander Shoffley right now on a day-to-day basis, even though you could say, well, one guy's got seven, eight majors, the other guy's got zero. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I could make an argument for Phil Mickelson if he was European. Because, again, it sounds like the European team, I mean, A, just is, is, was not a, a, as good on paper. But given that they weren't as good on paper, maybe if I was the European captain, I wanted to invest in variants. A right. player like Phil Mickelson, who, when he's on, will give you some great golf. But, you know. Well, that is what they did. So that's yeah. actually the player you could argue that they invested in, who I don't think automatically qualified. The greatest actual now Ryder Cup player in the history of the Ryder Cup is Sergio Garcia. He's got the most match wins in total, the most points. Um, he's part of what they've always called the Spanish Armada. So, you know, <laughs> you know, he's played with lots of different Spanish players. The original Spanish Armada, for those people that don't know, were Sevi, the late Sevi Ballesteros and Jose Maria Losable, who went 11-2-2 during golf. And then Sergio Garcia started playing with Olothabal. And now he's playing with John Rahm, who's the number one player in the world. Nice. And at least in, mat, in doubles play, where they play what's called four ball, they each play a ball, or four sums, where they hit alternate shots they were undefeated and like Sergio Garcia's record in that kind of team he's part of what they call the Spanish Armada and they did pick him Shane despite the fact that he hasn't really played well in 18 months but in the Ryder Cup the guy's money Mm -hmm. and he's got that he's got that competitive edge which is irritating when they're on the other side and wonderful when they're on your side he brings that to that match and in fact some some observers think that something that's different about this team other the U.S. team other than just being better ranked is that they have a, a, a more of a competitive edge to them than did the previous generation of Ryder cup. I want to bring up one last aspect of the Ryder cup that caught my eye. So going into the last day, it's 28 points, meaning there's four match. There's Saturday, there's Friday morning, Friday afternoon, Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, there each four points. So that's a total of 16 points. And then there's 12 singles matches. So it's a total of 28 points. And Kate already talked 19 to nine was the final greatest difference ever. Going into Sunday, the U.S. was 11 to 5 up, okay? They had won the first three sessions, 3 to 1, 3 to 1, 3 to 1, and then 2-2. So 11 11 to 5. Here's the question. They only needed three and a half points. And this is to get to 14 and a half, which if it was tied 14 all, Europe retains the cup. Here's my game theoretic question. One strategy, obviously, Europe had to put their best players up front. Because if the first three or four guys loses, it's over, and then... But if the U.S. knew that, that Europe was putting John Rahm in the first three or four and all their best players, should the U.S. put their best players at the back end of the draw or should they put them at the front end of the draw? Because, you know, it's kind of like this Princess Bride. If I think that you think that I think that you think. And so I was very interested because the way those matches come up for the 12 singles matches, it's not like I pick Shane Jensen and then Europe picks some guy. They submit it without seeing the other side. I put my 12 down. You put your 12 down. Then we open up the – we look behind the Wizard of Oz curtain. We see who's playing each other. 
if you were the U.S., I think the U.S. did something very strange. They put their best players up front, which I thought was strange because those matches, you could argue, maybe the four best Euro players are as good as the four best U.S. Why not put them on the back end, guarantee that we're going to be playing a bunch of scrubs on the back end? You know you're going to get those three or four points. You raise your probability of winning. Okay, the U.S. Team- has gotten burned, in, I mean, against probably a better-matched European squad, but they've gotten burned in the past by that exact strategy. Exactly. They, what they basically done. wasted Tiger Woods in several Ryder Cups because he was only playing it once it was not as competitive. So there's a couple of parameters I think you need to add to the model, Eric. One, you're implicitly playing with here, and I think it's valid, and that is momentum, that momentum matters. These aren't independent matches no. in a vacuum. And what we've seen and what everyone believes is that if a team gets some momentum, then they benefit down, down the card, they benefit, which is the very premise of what you're saying. What I don't know is the relation between the likelihood of winning and the difference between the players. Is it convex? Is it concave? If it's just linear, it shouldn't matter. I don't think so. I'm, I think as a starting place, it's, probably it's probably not linear but it may be linear in the space that matters in which case i don't know that it matters where you put your strength yeah i, I, see, I see your point i would have guessed by the way just for people listening that it was a what's a, what's called the convex function which means the difference between one and 15 for example is much different than between 15 and 20, 16 and 30 which are both the difference of 14 in other words there's massive mm-hmm. differences between the top top golfers and let's say look let, let's be clear and, 15 in the world could have won two or three majors in their career. There's nothing wrong with the 15th ranked golfer in the world. That person's exceptional. But number one, two, three, four, these are people like Dustin Johnson, Colin Morikawa, Justin Thomas. I mean, these are the guys that are not only great players and have won big tournaments and majors, but they're playing well right now. Yeah, that's that sounds right. I mean, we certainly it must be convex in the tail like that. So if you're doing rankings, I was playing more with like power rankings or something. It actually ranks like number one versus five should be a bigger difference than five versus nine, just because it's in the right. Yeah. The only thing I'll bring up is related to, you know, what you're describing, Kate, is we do this in sports all the time called an ELO model, where we make an assumption that it's the difference, the linear difference in strength of the two teams that matter. But there's actually a lot of work that suggests that you can't just take the linear difference in the strengths of the two teams. Like you might need a power function or some, you know, and, or it's not just the linear difference in the top end of the scale versus the bottom end of the scale, something like that. But it's, but it's an empirical question it's an empirical question if you really wanted to you know pimp out the game theoretic uh, response and you would want something like that listen before we go i want to add one other bit and that is i i want to know i want someone out there must be modeling like evaluate these golfers for me over these three days of golf on something other than one lost tie so i get it that's what matters that's what drives the wins that that's what determines the side i get it one lost tie but that's a super coarse way of looking at performance. And moreover, these guys faced very different conditions, depending on how the partner they happen to be paired up with plays and everywhere else in sports, we do this everywhere else in sports. We try to strip away context to see individual performance more clearly. Well, we've, we had, have, we've, we had golf have an, we've had many golf analytics people on the show before I assumed 
every shot in golf, there's a strokes gained computation you exactly. can make. Exactly. And we could assign that. So in other words, by the way, just, just for the record, Dustin Johnson tied a 42-year-old record. Dustin Johnson went 5-0-0. So he won all of he won all of the matches. There's only five sessions. He played in all five, which, by the way, is rare. And he won all five points. First time since Larry Nelson in 1979. But I don't know, actually. I haven't seen the data. I don't know if Dustin Johnson actually played the best. I understand he... And, and I mean, it's... But it's knowable. And well, it, it, it's only it's a little bit more complex only in some of the kind of like these kind of match sort of structures or, you know, right. like an sure. ultimate ball and stuff like that. You'd have to be a lot more careful about, you know, because right. in Northern tournaments, players at least kind of make their own context. You know, each shot feeds upon the, the previous one for their their own kind of performance. Or is this an alternate ball or something like that or best ball? Oh, I thought you were talking you know. about something different, Shane, which is, you know, if you've got a four on the hole, it doesn't matter whether I get a five or a 15. You know, <laughs> losing the hole is losing the hole. By the no, way, that, that's that, why that's I love the Ryder well. Cup. That's I love the well. fact that it's match play. Once I lose the hole, I can. I might as well go for broke because it doesn't matter whether I lose the hole by one or three. Okay, look, that's we could do this in a super sophisticated, granular way, and, and I wish somebody would. But we could also do it in kind of a heuristic way and ask just like how many birdies I got me, even yeah. just on Sunday. So some guys who lost – outplayed some guys who absolutely that's huh. just the way it is so i would just like a little bit finer measure just just out of curiosity and also to get some sense of how much my one loss record is to some extent outside my control because it depends on my opponent's performance the only stat i heard during the tournament was tony finau in the in the better ball match meaning he and another player both played their own balls tony finau shot eight birdies in uh, one of the rounds that he played. They won, but him yeah. saying he himself made <laughs> right. eight birdies. So Finau's partner got a W. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Finau's partner might I have could have been birdie. with Tony Finau. This was an alternate yeah. shot. He played his own ball. Unless he got so disgusted by my ball, Tony Finau and Eric Bradlow, Tony Finau made eight birdies. Okay, so while the U.S. was making this round on Sunday, which, by the way, Sunday singles every other year, that's just the best. Great. That's just great watching. Uh, a few things happened on the NF field. So, for example, there was a 66-yard field goal on the last play of the game um, in a dome, not at, not at atmosphere in Denver, in a dome. Of course, it was by my boy, Justin Tucker. Greatest, um, probably the greatest kicker of all time now, I think. We already thought that. Now he has a signature kick. Yeah, on well, top of the only other pro- it would be him or Vinatieri would be considered the greatest. Yeah, and I, I think it would no. be we, – we, we'd have to have, like, kind of the most accomplished versus kind of – you know, great point. Vinatieri is the most accomplished. Justin but... Tucker's Justin Tucker's the greatest kicker of all. Time. I mean, he's the most accurate, I think, of all time, even before. Yeah. Like, yes, that's right. yes, he is. That's right. What, yeah. So, Aaron Rodgers come back. I mean, Aaron, the Packers come back, led by Aaron Rodgers with 37 seconds, no timeouts. That's really something. Also, what else this weekend caught your eye? I mean, football football's a lot of fun right now. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm I I, I didn't like that it came at the expense of my second favorite team the Buccaneers but I'm really excited the Rams are an exciting team I I was hopeful that Matt Stafford Matt Stafford through Matt Stafford has deserved to be on a good team with a good coach you know for many many years that's right it's, it's kind of exciting to see that that basically to see what he can do with it so far the early returns I mean they may I would probably call them the best team in the NFC right now well, well, they are just gonna, they just got announced today. Maybe Massey Peabody has it the same way. I just saw on the ESPN power rankings. They're now the favorites to win the Super Bowl. 
Wow, that is jumping up there. We we have them flying up the the table. We we have them moving up three spots to number three right now, but we still have them behind Tampa Bay and New Orleans. They have what I consider to be the most interesting game of the weekend coming up. I know y'all won't. Y'all will think. I know what game y'all will think is most interesting, but Arizona is going to Los Angeles. No, yeah, no, and I mean, I mean, we we probably do have to talk about that 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 uh, that Brady, Brady Patriots game you you mentioned, but I I think both you know the. Fa- Basically, it's it's two divisional matchups in the NFC West, which is right. I still think the crazy, you know, by far the most sort of like skilled division out there right now. Right. So the Rams are favored by four and a half against Arizona. The Niners are favored by two and a half against Seattle. We're in the last half minute. New England, Tampa Bay. The line is six and a half. Yeah, I, I'm going to say it. I'll give my prediction. It's stealing money. Tampa Bay is going to rout the Patriots. Brady, Patriots are no good. Brady's going to destroy that destroy yeah. them yeah yep. it's, think- not, it's not gonna be close well the patriots <laughs> won't score enough points to be competitive exactly exactly well um if you're looking for other games fellas uh we're gonna talk to rufus in the fourth quarter and he was just in vegas they have a game against the chargers which is kind of fun Another, that's it. a fantastic game raiders yeah, chargers fantastic game yeah. too yeah and no, uh, the ba- battle battle for the afc west supremacy we always knew it was gonna be those two teams right <laughs> <laughs> all right that's been two quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Dave Massey hosting with my longtime buddies, collaborators, Wharton colleagues, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen. Adi Weiner's away. He will be back. We are rolling into the third quarter. Another open lines, historically, open topic now, quarter. We just talked a lot about the Ryder Cup and a little about the NFL. Let's keep the football conversation going. How about college football, Eric? I know you're taking in a lot of sports these days. There's a lot more college football to take in than professional football. Anything in particular catch your eye in college? Well, I mean, um, what is not, I think as this was just last week, didn't Arkansas pretty much manhandle A&M? You know, I I wouldn't know anything about Arkansas. I really haven't been paying attention to no, them. but I think manhandling I mean, teams from Texas. No, but I, I mean Texas A and M was a lot of people are thinking they were a possibility for the Final Four for the college football playoff. And now you know Arkansas is playing Georgia this week. Well, don't run too past the A and M thing because that was a real pleasure. I mean, no, one of the great was, things about sports is no, pulling against though, teams. This is I one of the great su- things about sports. I think that surprised most people the margin oh, gosh, yeah. by which Absolutely. Arkansas beat A and M. And then the other the other game that surprised me, maybe because we had buried them as mediocre, but I guess we'll find out more this week. I think Notre Dame handling Wisconsin the way they handled them um, was pretty impressive. And, you know, that's another game I had my eye on. And I'm like, maybe Notre Dame's more for real than I think. We'll find out. They're playing, a, obviously, a tough Cincinnati team this year. We had two top 10 matchups this week, Arkansas and Georgia, Notre Dame, Cincinnati. Those are big games. The winner of those two games, you know, this way, they're on their path to the to the college football playoff, the winner of those two games. Well, the Notre Dame thing is interesting because it's Wisconsin that's been kind of confusing and tough to make sense of so far. And that game, I think that game was closer than the final score looked. Uh, a couple of late pick sixes. And that doesn't reflect well on Graham Mertz and Wisconsin, but still a couple of pick sixes. Um, the One of the biggest stories, obviously, was – Clemson's loss and you know they just they don't lose regular season games and they went in and NC State missed a field goal to win that game at the end of regulation and when 
that highlight went across all the games. You're like, oh, heck, they just blew that chance. There's no way they're hold on. And then two OTs later, they actually clip Clemson. Clemson's, they're down to like 19 in the polls or something. That hasn't been that in like, I don't know, five, six years. So it's just a tumultuous year so far, which is great fun. Bill Connolly, Bill writes a great article every Monday or so recapping the weekend. And he wrote kind of a, what do we know so far? First four weeks of the season, what do we know? He noted that there have been more ranked teams lose through the first four years, through the first four weeks, than any time in the history of the AP. I hadn't heard that wow. stat, but I believe it given mm-hmm. just, I, I, I mean, I could name, well, I could name, forget just ranked teams. Cause you know, to me, team ranked 23rd could be ranked 27th. I, that doesn't yeah. mean as much to me, but the number of top 10 teams that yeah. mean something that have lost, that's meaningful. Well, it's, it's, it's right. We could look at it in a finer way, but th- as a very coarse measure, 25 losses from ranked teams in the first four weeks. And that's kind of what you want in college football. It's so it's fun. We should be enjoying it. It's really not surprising fellas, considering we knew coming in that this was a weird year. This was a year where two things are distinct. One, we didn't have a very good uh, history for what teams did last year. Some teams played four games and all of them played under the cloud of the pandemic. So a lot of our models depend on what happened last year. And last year was not much data. The other thing is players kept their eligibility. If they wanted to stick around for a fifth year, you could do that. And so you've got all this, all these teams with many more experienced players, these super seniors than we've ever had before the returning production and back to Conley again, Conley has this returning production number. The average returning production is something like 75% or something. And this year it was like, I don't know, maybe 70%. And this year was like 85. It was this big jump in average returning production. And that's just, these are just things we don't have in our models. And so we knew uncertainty was high and we kind of hope that meant that we would see things like this happen. And it's really transpired for us. So it's been a fun year rolling into the weekend. Let's just name a little bit of what we have going on. Eric mentioned Cincy Notre Dame. We've been talking about that. You know, when we first started talking about that, we had Pat Forty on the show. Yep. To talk about his daughter swimming the Olympics in like June. And he told us, hey, since he's got two big games, Indiana and Notre Dame, they clipped Indiana two weeks ago and they've got Indiana and they've got, and you know what? They're favored going into South Bend. They're two and a half point favorites. So Eric, I guess the bookmakers are not too impressed with Notre Dame's big victory over Wisconsin because they have Cincinnati favored going into that game. Other, this is one of the better weekends we've had so far. Early season college is sometimes a little thin We've had great outcomes, but not great schedules ahead of time. The SEC really brings it this weekend. We've got Arkansas going into Georgia. We talked about that line. We're going to talk more with Rufus about it. Ole Miss is going to Alabama, guys. There aren't that many teams that can give Alabama a run. Ole Miss looks interesting, explosive offense with Lane Kiffin's system. But importantly, Ole Miss is one of the few teams that's actually given Alabama fits over the last five or six years. They've beaten them before. They've taken them further than other teams have. They're 14-point dogs going into Tus- into Tuscaloosa. Um, uh, Just to week. remind everybody that people say, well, they're 14-point dogs. That actually is not that big a line. I mean, for Alabama, that's not that big a line. No, it's right. I mean, Alabama is – let's look at it real quickly. Alabama is – we have them at like 32 points above the average team. They would be 14-point favorites over – Against the, almost everybody, right? Uh, yeah. Against the, you know, the fifth team in the country – Oklahoma, if it was on a neutral field, would have Alabama about 14-point favorites. So you're exactly right. We have Ole Miss as 11th in the country. I mean, that's a very strong team, and they're still 14-point underdogs. Another SEC game that looks interesting is Ole Miss at 
I mean, uh, Auburn at LSU. And then we've got Michigan going into Wisconsin where people still believe in Wisconsin. I'm surprised at this line. Michigan's a one point underdog. They're undefeated. Wisconsin has looked super sketch. They've already lost a couple games. It is in Madison, but people don't believe in Michigan yet. They've been oh, so I was just about to ask you, why did you originally say people still believe in Wisconsin? Maybe people just don't believe in Michigan. Like, That's, how do we know which of the, by the way, by the way this people is have gotten question. burned believing in Michigan ask, for about five years in a row now. That's right. right? No, That's, no, no, I, I know that, but I, I'm just going to, I want to ask you guys a serious question. Given that these, you know, lines have to do with, you know, again, the difference between two teams' rankings. How do we know whether people, well, Massey Peabody knows because you have an mm-hmm. absolute ranking and we can compare it across years. But just by looking at the line, I can't tell if they think Michigan's good and Wisconsin's good or neither's good or both. Are, I mean, there's no way to know just by looking at the line, right? I have to have a power ranking like Massey Peabody. That's right. But you can start doing some transitivity stuff because since he's favored over Notre Dame, I think Notre Dame was favored over Wisconsin. It was in Chicago. I don't remember quite how it went out, but you can kind of puzzle through it that way. By the way, where given people, what, go I ahead, was going to say, given what we've seen so far in this college football season, do we believe less in the power rankings than we usually do? Or? You should, you should explicitly. And we Rufus and I really played with this, ahead of the season and it's it it was it was just we had to just do it kind of from intuition we we relaxed our priors and we also really relaxed the weight on last year's data and that's usually very important inputs so kate i'm sure you and rufus have looked at this over time but of course the whole idea about there being a strength parameter a single number that's aggregated up to a single number is that if you just fight just for our listeners if i just draw a line i plop each team on a line and it's the difference between those dis it's the distance that determines the probability one beats the other i'm sure you guys have looked for violations of unidimensionality like there really should be have you found any evidence and i'll call it the reason i thought of it is your comment about transitivity if everything falls on a line there will be transitive preferences or transitive orderings have you found any evidence of violations of that rufus could speak more to the tails because in the very extreme tails when you get up to spreads that are like 25 30 points i think linearity breaks down a little bit but right. it is shockingly linear over almost the entire spectrum really interesting yeah. Sho- shockingly linear which is makes it really useful for us but like michigan i shouldn't i mean i say i'm surprised at the michigan wisconsin line but we have Michigan 14th in the country at 15.8 above average. And we have Wisconsin 17th in the country at 13.7 above average. So 2.1 on a neutral field to Michigan. Give and it's Wisconsin, at Wisconsin, right? Yeah, give Wisconsin three for home field. That's it may about not it. Be three, there it is. There's the number. Real close. I mean, we'd make it probably real close to a push. It's a one-point line. And so that's a fun. I mean, it's really time for Michigan to put up or shut up. I mean, we're going to be saying that for the rest of the season. But this is the first of those. Tests. I don't know why I didn't look this week, given my relation to the Penn, the wonderful Penn State University. Is Penn State playing anybody meaningful this week? They're still undefeated, right? They are. And we believe in them. A lot of people believe in them. we have them 10th in the country. And I forget who they're playing this week, but I didn't note them as a as an important game. And so at least it's not that interesting. They're probably some Rutgers kind of game. Well, that's what they tier. played last week. I know that they played like, you know, Penn last week. They, 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 played, was they a... played Villanova, I think. Yeah, like Villanova. Very, very yeah, close. No, no, this is actually an interesting game. Thank you, Matt. I did notice this game. Indiana. Any chance Indiana has against Penn State? No, they're just not what we hoped they would be. They're not what they were okay. last year. Their quarterback has been injured too much. He does, he's not the threat he used to be. He's, some folks are saying they think because he's not the running threat, he's forcing some throws. They just have underperformed um, last year's kind of standard 
Guys, before we run out of time, let's talk a little bit about baseball. We're in the last week here, and there are still some playoff spots available and some craziness as well. So um, what do you got? What do you think is interesting? Your Yankees are fighting for a wild card spot. Up until a recent hot streak, they weren't going to make the playoffs. Yeah, they're now, I mean, because they swept the Red Sox. uh, They're now in the number one wild card spot, actually. One ahead of the Red Sox, who are one ahead of the Blue Jays. So if the playoffs started today, the Yankees would host the Red Sox in the wild card game. What I find the most (laughs) interesting, just quickly, for 30 seconds, if it's a three-way tie, it's such a wonderful thing that happens. So the team, let's say it's a three-way tie between those three teams. It's not just a three-way tie. It's a three-way tie within the same division. No, no, I know that. There's a three-way tie within the division. In this case, the Red Sox have a winning record against the Yankees and the Blue Jays. So the Red Sox would pick first. Now, let me say what I mean by pick first. They can play in the first game against the number two team, and they have home field. If they lose that game, though, it counts towards the regular season record. Then they're away against the number three team on the next day. But they get two chances to win to make the wild card game. So this was the debate. Let me say it again. All three teams are tied. Three teams are tied. The number one team, let's say it's the Red Sox, gets to pick first. You said they were tied. Who's who's to say who's number one? Oh, because of inter- they played each other 19 times during the regular oh, season. Okay, they okay, beat okay. the There's Yankees and the, and the Blue Jays in the season series. Why don't they just let that determine it? Well, I, they don't. And so the Red Sox <laughs> get to go first. And there's a scenario by which the Red Sox could – I mean, look, they're going to play you in the You haven't really told game. us what, what's going to happen. As you're saying they get to go first. We don't even know what the enterprise is. Are you saying they're going to – what are they going to do? I don't understand. So they, no. These are play-in games. These are play-in play games, games to get into the wild card games. game. To break the tie to establish who's in the wild card game and who hosts. So they're just the going to eliminate one team. Is what's going to happen? And no. Then, well, yes. Yeah, so three-way let's tie. Assume, let's wait, wait. Let's be clear. Let's for assume for the moment one place two in the first. I play want this in. to happen so badly. I do what too. What can we do to make it this happen? Again. It would be pretty amazing. One place two in the play-in game. Whoever wins that game is in the wild card game. Whoever okay. loses that game plays the team that didn't play that day. But because they have a loss. It counts towards the regular season record. They're the away team to the number three team in the game the next day. Yeah. And then the so winner the of that three game team is only in the has wild one card shot game. to make the wild card game Say as again. opposed to two, Say. but they are home for that one shot. Who does? The number three team. That is correct. Scenario. The number three team has one shot, but they're the home team. And I feel the like one- they, didn't, they didn't stack the scales quite right. Wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't it be closer to fair? If the team no, one and two, two, get shot, two shots, oh, two gets two shots also. Yeah, because two plays the in that first goes, game uh, against one. So one of the two shot teams has to be home. So you have. But to the get... three team, but the one and two, if they play each other, the loser of that game is behind the three because they're now a half game behind because they lost that game and it counts. That's towards also the regular fair. Season. They should they should be disadvantaged relative to the team that only has one shot, and the only way to disadvantage them is to make them the road team. That is correct. Okay. Yeah. Man, oh, man, that sounds like fun. And by the way, I mean, the fourth team in that division won the thing, right? So this is the – that's just a powerful – that's a powerful well, I, well, thing. That's the thing is, I mean, Ta- Tampa Bay is already in, and then it's between the last – the next three teams for these two wild card spots. How and they'll be playing one this, of them. How bad does this make Baltimore look? That they're well, like maybe the it's because maybe, the AL East that must have beat them Maybe it's because Baltimore is so bad that all these no, other teams is. are so well. It is no, actually no, – no, it is actually – 
Tampa Bay apparently went eighteen and one this year against Baltimore, and that no, was the different. That's what no, gave them such a big lead against the Red Sox, the Yankees, and the Blue Jays. I, I feel like I haven't, Baltimore. I, haven't, I haven't seen the Orioles beat the Yankees in like two or three years, and I'm sure no, if they I, I was, no, just no, it. I was in the stands at the Texas. Louisiana okay. Lafayette game, and the guy next to me was a Yankees fan listening to the Orioles beat them. I remember okay. them beating him. <laughs> okay. So, by the way, when are the Orioles going to be good? We have friends who run that thing. How many years are we supposed to give them before they turn things around? Now, we gave the Astros, whatever, three or four years, but that's a, that's a really smart um, front office. And I would expect, I would have my money on them long term. Yeah, I mean, I just think that they, they, they are unfortunate. It's, you know, what they, you know, they, they're in a division with a lot of smart front office. Yeah, I, I just all feel of them. like, you know, all it's, four it's, of them, yeah. these are the five, you know. five of the sharpest clubs in the league. And they're all, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, if we, if we could make a division out of the Orioles and the LA, like the Angels and like a couple other teams, the Orioles will probably make the playoffs next year. Did you hear Otani's comments about he wants to, he, yeah, he loves the, he loves the club, but uh, he wants to win. Yeah, yeah. This is the one. If I was Otani, I'd want to as well. It's the wonderful yeah. thing about Otani this year. Um, in my view, he's not the best hitter, that's for sure, and he's not the best pitcher, but the best convex combination. He is the MVP. He's the he MVP. has to be the MVP, but he's Gotta neither the best going. pitcher or the best hitter. Yeah, yeah. Come I mean, on, these things are negatively really, correlated. It also helps that there's nobody else that's really super standing out as an MVP candidate. So, uh, yeah, it's it's got to be Otani. All right, guys, that has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. Come back and join us for the. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now. Fourth quarter has become our interview segment. In this segment, we're talking to Rufus Peabody. Rufus is practically family. He's family to my family, and he's family to Wharton Moneyball family. Rufus, welcome back to the show. Glad to have you. It's good to be back. It's been a while. It has been a little while. You, for those of you who don't know, Rufus is a sports better. He's the Peabody and Massey Peabody, and so he's contributed to my analytics life for some time now. Um, he has a he has a podcast which is a popular podcast in the sports betting world called bet the process. He co-hosted with Jeff Maud, bet the process, strong recommendation for bet the process. For those of you who like to play a little bit in the sports markets, um, a good way to um, do so more wisely. You can also follow Rufus on Twitter. Got a big following on Twitter at Rufus Peabody is his handle up there. Rufus, I think you're out in Las Vegas and maybe it's the first time in a while. How's the city feel to you? How was the stadium? You went to the game the other night. What do you think? It's, it's good to be back out here. It really is. It's, I'm looking at the strip right now um, and the stadium was gorgeous. It was, it was quite an experience and, and I got a, a really dramatic game. And I think, I think Cade, I'm a Raiders fan now. <laughs> well, I, I, grew up a, I grew up a Washington football team fan and, and I still am. But, you know, fandom is an emotional thing. And yes, I do have bets on the Raiders, like a bunch of alternate season win totals, but, you know, not that much. And I just found myself like emotionally attached to the team. And I didn't expect that because, you know, when the, I'm an Orioles fan and when the Nationals came to town um, to Washington, D.C., I had an emotional reaction against them. 
I wanted to be a Nationals fan, but I couldn't be. So I think I'm a Raiders fan. I love it when we discover our preferences in sports. I love when I sit down to watch a football game I don't think I care about, and then I discover I'm pulling for Indiana all of a sudden or whatever it is. It feels like a very true preference when we just kind of discover it. Yeah, the thing is, I don't really get that very often, just given the betting. Yeah. It's, it's, so, it's so rare that I watch a game where I don't have some stake in it. Yeah, right. So, Rufus, since you just brought up the Raiders, which are an interesting team to me, because they're 3-0, and but they, I mean, we could argue and debate they should have lost game number one. Yeah. They had a very impressive win at the Steelers. And then one could argue, really? They only beat the Dolphins by three in overtime? So where do you, like, how much faith do you have when you see kind of this uneven pattern given to win the Super Bowl? You know, you might have to win three, four playoff games. I mean, do the Raiders seem consistent enough and excellent enough what, from what you've seen so far? Uh, you know, I don't think they do to win the Super Bowl. Uh, you know, I, I can I can always hope. They're, they're a slight. I have them as slightly a, a slightly above average team. Um, in truth, they should have won that Miami game. Um, well, they should have won it by fourteen points, thirteen points, really. Well, I guess no, twelve. If they hadn't missed the extra point. In watching, I mean, I, I was watching with um, Preston Johnson, who's another sports better, and you know, he he was was sure that Miami was going to win just because there were so many like really low probability events that went Miami's way. Miami played amazing in the high leverage situations. They converted all their fourth downs, the third, and there was roughing the passer calls on third and long that they didn't convert um, the missed extra point, you know, two point conversion. So I I actually, I mean, if we look at the game grades for it um, actually, I look at your game grades and, and Las Vegas doesn't actually look that great for it, but um, the Massey Peabody game grades, but, but they clearly were the better team um, and, and should have won, I think by more than they did. Well, they're going to get an interesting test this next weekend. We're going down to Los Angeles to play the chargers. They're two point dogs there. So we'll find out a little bit more, but as Rufus says, there's two, that's what I'm seeing two. online. Anyway. Wow. Is it, is it moved? I thought it was, it was three and a half. Well, I'm just kind of scraping across a few covers. Three, three and a half. Three and, Three and a half. half. All right. You got a, a, a more recent line, but we have them right. Massey, everybody has them right in the middle. Listen, Rufus, we, we're going to talk more football with you. It's always fun, but I want to make sure we talk about your new venture, which is unique out there. Sports betting has completely blown up and everybody and the mother wants to sell you some picks. There aren't many people out there who are actually trying to help you be smarter kind of on your side most people just want to sell you a little something and so you have been an advocate for sports betters for a while now um you've never sold picks massey peabody's never sold picks and it's been fun to watch you be evangelical about this but you have finally stepped up and partnered with some folks and are making them an offer in the market that you say is gonna make betters smarter so I need to reveal that I'm a minority owner of this thing. We sold Massey Peabody to this venture, and so I'm not a completely objective opinion. But we wanted to get you out here to talk about it again because this is something different. This is something that the sports betting market has not had and nobody else is offering, and you come at it from a very philosophical perspective. I'm talking, of course, about Unabated. Unabated is a new venture that Rufus has. What can you tell us about Unabated, Rufus? So, Cade, thank you for that, that lovely um, intro for Unabated. Um, so right now there is such a glut of, of sports betting content out there that really is designed to 
get you to sign up for a sports book um, because these most of these con- most of these um, media companies are well, they make their money through affiliate marketing with sports book operators. So they're not necessarily incentivized to be on your side. Um, and most of sports betting, there's a lot of sports betting content revolving around picks and people love picks for some reason. And, you know, that's probably not going to change, but what we, we saw an opportunity for something different in the market to help educate betters and sort of move them up along sort of the, I guess, ladder of becoming, um, sharper. And I realize sports betting is entertainment and most people are not going to become professional betters and we're not going to make you a professional better at unabated. But what we're going to do is give you tools to help quantify your opinion um, and hopefully make the process more enjoyable. And, and I guess I, I, I would compare us like to a strength and conditioning coach for a football team. You know, we can help you reach your potential and give you sort of the, um, that sort of ability to become better, but we're not going to give you the answers. You know, it's funny you say strength and conditioning. I I don't know if I agree with that analogy. I feel like you're adding like robotics to performance or something. You know, you're giving people something structural that really points them in the right direction. Can you tell us, tell us, I mean, we can argue about the analogy, but tell us what the tools are. You said you're going to give better tools to make them better. What do you mean? What kind of tools are you talking about? Well, maybe, maybe I'm Chip Kelly with the Eagles initially, who knows, but the tools. So, so we have um, so we have trading tools that will allow a better to help well, to find um, you know to find to be able to compare prices. If one sports book is offering a line of minus three minus one twenty on a game, um, what should that money line be? Is 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 that a better market? So in that way, you can sort of cut down um, cut down the book's edge by finding the best market for the side you want to bet. You can also look for derivative value in markets where, you know, if, if a larger market, like a game market implies has one price and a derivative market, like a first quarter, or we, we don't have that up on the site yet, but um, our first half um, has a different price. And maybe that price does not correspond properly to what the game price um, to, to what it should be based on the game price. And, and you can find some value in that way. Um, but more generally, I mean, I, the, the product I'm most proud of is our, our NFL Future Simulator, which actually is adapted from work Kate and I did with it for Massey Peabody. And it allows the user to input their own power ratings, um, make their own injury probabilities if they wish, or they can use ours. Um, and home field advantage, customize it by team, um, and run uh, NFL season-long simulations to see playoff probabilities, distribution of wins, you know, probability of winning the Super Bowl. And we have all these cool little levers that we've added where, you know, a user can can change the dynamic uncertainty of a team. They can say, you know, I, I think that Jacksonville, I'm less confident in my rating on Jacksonville. Um, I'm going to ratchet up the, the dynamic uncertainty. So you'll have a wider range of outcomes there um, versus what the Massey Peabody Optimal suggests it should be if you have an opinion there. So, so this is an example of one of these tools that lets you quantify um, your own opinion. And we realized that most people don't have their own models. And so we have uh, a bunch of different publicly available models to choose from, or you can combine them. And so even with us, even though we're Massey Peabody, um, my betting isn't based on just using the Massey Peabody model. Before the season, when I was betting futures, I, I used, I did a combination of the Massey Peabody model and a model, a market implied model, market applied ratings model that we had based on look ahead lines for the full season. So um, because you know, to, 
well, while Massey Peabody hopefully adds some value, it's certainly, I mean, the market um, certainly has a lot more information um, than, than our, our quantitative system does. So, um, so Rufus, that, you said, you said a whole lot there. You, you've talked about the, the, the derivatives tools and comparing lines, not just across books, but across types of bets. You talk about the, 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 the simulation that gives you some futures. Um, and uh, I'm curious to hear, I, mean, I really need to shut up. Eric and Shane need to ask questions, both challenging and clarifying questions. Well, I mean, and I guess along those lines, Kate, I mean, the kind of question, I guess a high level question I have is how much kind of guidance is built in, like take somebody like me, who's just, this is my entry point into betting. And I mean, it sounds like your, your service is certainly offering kind of a very comprehensive sort of look at like, you can come kind of compare across many different sources, what the lines are at, and presumably just kind of from that see sort of where particular betting lines are mispriced relative to the other ones. But, you know, I, as much as you've given, you know, users a lot of kind of control to specify their own uncertainties, is there kind of as a default sort of either Massey Peabody or something underlying that where like, if I just opened this up and started saying, I started to want, want to make better bets than I could with my own judgment, is, is there a lot of kind of guidance built into the system by kind of- yes. That's a great question, Shane. And yes, the data science is built based on, it's the same stuff we did for Massey Peabody. So uh, that's something that I think is a differentiator for us. Our data science, I mean, is the, the default, I guess, um, we think is optimal. So Rufus, let me ask a follow-up to that. So let me tell you as someone that, you know, dabbles in sports betting, but certainly not my living. <laughs> um, here's what I would love to have, and maybe Unabated can do this. So let's imagine it's a, any given Sunday and let's imagine there's NBA going on. Let's imagine there's NFL going on. Let's imagine there's tennis going on, golf going on, et cetera. It sounds like you, Eric's living room on any given Sunday. Well, no, that's what's going on <laughs> in my TV is that I know, but I'm asking a different question. Can you just give me a rank ordered list of positive expected value bets to make in a rank ordered way on unabated? And then I'll just decide whether I want to make them, but you just give me a rank ordered list based on the models, the lines, um, any arbitrage opportunities, first half full game, and I'll just place those bets. Um, unfortunately we are not doing that. We are not directly giving the answers, but I will say this, if you run your simulations, you can, we our, our product integrates with, an odd screen where you can see based on your simulations where um, there's value on a team to win the Super Bowl, a team to win the division. But where we're, you're going to have to put in some work yourself if you want uh, just to know where these arbitrage opportunities are. And even if we were to kind of have the good, you know, with your, with your, the, that guidance, like kind of be able to kind of rank the arbitrage opportunities within a sport, it might, how, can you maybe talk a little bit about how challenging it would be to kind of try and compare them across sports? Like, you know, like, oh, this, this particular football bet versus like this particular golf bet, given, you know, the obviously very different number amount of uncertainty and kind of the just overall enterprise involved. Well, first off, there, there isn't a ton of arbitrage um, really in the, in the sports betting world at this point, just given how global it is. Uh, most of these, you know, most books have lines that are fairly similar, but what you can find is a book that has a number that's, that's maybe mispriced. You, know, you might not be able to bet the other side and lock in a profit, but you can still find, still find value there. So that's kind of, I think what we're, what users can sort of look at with, with sort of these derivative trading tools. And the one thing though, is if we gave everybody, if we said, oh, these are the best arbitrage bets, you know, suddenly 
those wouldn't be available anymore. Right. You know, if, if, if you make the barrier to entry so low for someone that it's absolutely no work and they get a feed with it, then it, it's gone for everybody. Right. And so I, I think that we want the users to, I think through doing this, users are going to understand, like understand the markets a little more too. And in, in a way, like what things tend to be mispriced. And so just talk um, about, talk about that for a second, because I do think there's an educational mission here. In fact, your partner, oh, Captain, Captain Jack, your professional sports better partner, you have a business partner as well and some data and some programming engineering partners, but Captain Jack is the betting partner. And one of the main things he's done in recent years is produce sports betting educational videos, trying to educate the better. Like in what way is unabated, unabated educating betters here? Well, first off, Captain Jack is amazing. He's not my, my betting partner, but he's the, my partner for, he's a co-founder and not, and not a bait. I, I meant he was a, a partner who bets. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, so Captain Jack has done a lot of educational videos as well as articles, basically. And, and I think, um, for example, in a lot of these states, you have, I don't know, I mean, I don't know if you guys have been living under a rock or what, but I don't know, but I've been bombarded with commercials for sports books and all their risk-free bets and everything. And, and well, how do you, is it actually risk-free? Well, no, not really. But is there an opportunity to take advantage of it? Yes. And there's a specific way to maximize your EV um, on, on these sort of promotions. And Captain Jack has a fantastic article um, talking about that. And, you know, I have a, we have a friend actually that, that um, made $8,000 risk-free in New Jersey just by, taking advantage of these promotions and, and betting the other side at one book and, and just without any risk. Um, yes. Yeah, so Rufus, let me understand something. So even if somebody becomes that, this is obviously why they're a professional gamblers, but I'm an effect size person. So how much better than, you know, the VIG than the, you know, you have to bet 110 to win 100 or use an example, minus 120, bet 120 to win 100. How, how much better can one do than the odds to make it so that there is money in long run betting, given that, you know, they don't give you the betting odds. They don't take the money for free. They, they, they make you put 10% more, maybe 20% more. That seems like a very high number for the casual better. So can you give us a sense of, even if I become really educated on unabated and I, and I learn all the best strategies, do I have a chance of defeating 10% in the long run or 15%? <laughs> well, you know, it would be 10 or 15% if you were talking about horse racing, but thankfully it isn't. Minus 110 is, is only about a four and a half percent household. So um, it's a great question. And I'll, I'll say that it, it definitely depends on the market. And so the larger markets, something like the NFL, where there's a lot of liquidity, higher limits, you have more price discovery. Those are harder markets to beat, but Books offer a ton of different markets. There's essentially a ton of surface area that they have to defend and the better can attack. So you have um, all these proposition wagers that are available, um, very esoteric things. Will this person score three or more touchdowns in a game? And so those typically have a little bit of a higher hold, but but at the same time, um, they're often mispriced. And mm-hmm. a lot of that, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to segue into a tool that we, we're going to be debuting later this week. Um, fingers crossed, which is going to be a, a prop uh, betting tool that allows someone to, it's a prop simulator where if you, you can put in your projection for, you have to bring your own projection for a receiver. You could say wide receiver with 5.5 catches for 73.1 yards. And 
we will simulate and basically figure out, um, we do the data science, what that, what that distribution looks like and, and what the odds are of that receiver getting a hundred or more yards or, you know, what that, and, and what the median is. And that's something, um, books are not very good. The market in general is not very good at distinguishing mean from a median. If a receiver averages half of a touchdown per game, half a touchdown per game, that doesn't mean there's a 50% chance they'll get a touchdown in the game. It's, it's much less because they could get two or three touchdowns. So, um, so basically, I, I, I think that there are, there are a ton of opportunities betting props, especially um, with the sort of mean, mean median thing. But, but what we want to do is give, we're not, there isn't a free lunch. We're, we're, it, we want to give the user the chance to put in their own projections, which maybe they get from some publicly available site and it's, things are mispriced enough that there's value. And that's probably going to be the case quite often. Um, but they can put in their own projections as well and, and sort of see what, what the, that whole distribution looks like and where there is value. How do you validate whether unabated is doing a good job? Like what's your metric of like one way you could imagine doing, let's talk about the educational component first. You know, I, my guess is maybe I'm assuming you have not run a randomized AB test where some people get educated and some people don't. Maybe you have, Um, (laughs) you you could come up, I, I don't know. Maybe you've come up with a, uh, a simulator, and of course, you know, then you can observe the truth after the fact and see how well the distribution fits the data that you've simulated. How, how do you guys both evaluate fit, and how do you refine your models based on deviations that you find? That's a great question, and one that I don't really have a great answer for. I, I think in my career, I've always been able, I've always had great metrics to evaluate how I'm doing, and that's wins and losses and you know, profit gained or lost. And which is one thing I love about betting. I have a scoreboard. And so for this, there isn't a direct scoreboard. There's, we, we get a lot of it's feedback we get from people, um, how many users we have, but, but growth doesn't necessarily equal mean that we're doing well. And so um, I'm, so, so the answer is, I don't really know. I just, I have a bunch of ideas and things that I think are useful from, from my experience betting and, and sort of my vision for the, and for, well, I don't want to say for the industry, but but my, my views in the industry, and so I'm, um, and and I'm hoping that other people will find them valuable as well. And- I'd like to, I'll, I'll throw it, I'll, I'll advocate for Eric's uh, A/B testing sort of suggestion. I think that that would actually be a really kind of cool way to explore kind of like the different different types of strategies that you might actually suggest to people, etc. Could potentially be sort of explored in in in. in via like, you know, essentially some, uh, some, uh, kind of, you know, different arms of, a an experiment. So basically you so present, Shane, infor- you I, present I, information to them in different ways or you yes, give them different yeah. tools and see which mm-hmm. ones end up making them more effective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think we should AB test with Shane and Eric. One of them, we educate one of them. We don't. <laughs> we see who <laughs> You're already better. capturing a wide range of <laughs> betting know-how, even with that particular sample. Well, so, let me say we, we, you can learn something without running the experiment as well. Obviously experiments are the gold standard, but one of the things that always excited me about this venture is that as an educator, you can learn what people do with these tools and there'll be smarter and less smart things to do with the tools. You can see, I mean, so you download, you can go in there and you want to run, uh, you want to simulate the season. You can download FBI, ESPN's FBI model. And simulate the season off of that. And then you can start tweaking. You think they have the Packers too high and Jacksonville too certain. And so you start tweaking and Lamar Jackson's more likely to get hurt or whatever. And so you tweak it, you run your thing. And you can, after you see many people do this, you see the kinds of modifications they make. 
and you get some sense of the more common errors that people make. Okay, so that's a great question. So Rufus, the thing that Kay just described, so besides, I'll just call it clickstream data, are you guys, I'm assuming you've got your site instrumented so you know where people are going on it. Um, do you also do what Kate suggests, which is, you know which simulations people are running, you're going to keep some big database of simulations that people are running and, and learn something from it from a, either a business perspective, betting perspective, bias perspective, is that part of the business plan? So I, I think that's a really interesting idea. And to be honest, I don't, I'm not the person that, well, I don't, I'm, I'm not the IT, I'm not the, the developer, I'm not the one that understands um, where these simulations live after they're run. So I, I can't actually answer that question. But I think part of it also, I think there's a trust issue too. I mean, if we, if we, if we took people's simulations, I mean, someone, what if someone has this great model and they don't, you know, I, I want them to be able to run these simu their simulations and not be like, oh, you know, unabated is just taking my data and going and, and Rufus is going and betting it because he, he found that my stuff is actually really good. So I'm um, right now, I mean, if we did anything, we would obviously anonymize it, but I, I don't think we're doing that at the moment. But, um, but again, I don't really know, but I think it is a fantastic idea to sort of, to sort of see. And, and I know Cade, um, Cade's views on algorithms. Um, I, I often use Cade's quote. There's, uh, wait, now I'm going to blank on it, but, but the only thing, dumber than an algorithm is your intuition. Is that, is that about right? <laughs> I probably wouldn't have said dumber, but sure. We can go with that. Um, all right. Listen, man, thanks for giving us that update. And we're excited about it. I can tell you, as a decision scientist, I know that one of the best things we can do to help people make better forecasts is let them use their judgment, their intuition, but let's help them do it more systematically. And these models and tools you're giving betters, you're saying, look, bring your own opinion here. But whatever the opinion is, there's a right way to deploy that opinion, whether it's a simulation or, you know, a first half bet, there's a right way to deploy it. And we're going to help you do that. And I love that combination. I mean, we, we know in lots of domains, this combination of expert and algorithm is actually the best combination. And it's one way to think about unabated is that you're blending expertise or at least intuition. Some people are more expert than others, but you're blending that intuition with machinery that we know the, the single best, the single main reason algorithms improve human judgment is that they're consistent. It's not that there's some fancy signal in there that they, that the human doesn't have It's that they use whatever signals they have consistently, systematically every time. That's the biggest advantage of a model over humans. And I think that's one, I think that's the real, one of the real sources of value for unabated. All right, let's stop the unabated conversation there. Cause I want to talk football with you. You are a fun person to kick things around with on both the NFL side and the college side. Let's do college for a second. Um, well, first, give us the state of the union on Massey Peabody. How about that? And like football betting in general, what would you say about the state of the union of football betting in America? Football betting is more popular than ever. Um, as Does that mean it's easier to make money, Rufus, or harder to make money? It's a good question. Um, I, I think I don't think it, it, it's affected one way or the other. To be quite honest, I think that the the reason markets get more efficient is through well more well wisdom of crowds, but 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 through the process of price discovery, and the process in most books in the United States are not engaging that price process. They are essentially copying another book that the offshore market making books that that do. And so until um, with with the notable exception of Circus Sports, which is the best book in the United States by far. Um, they're in Las Vegas and Colorado, but I think that 
you right now, um, more people in the market does not make, make the lines sharper or dumber um, at this point. I think at some point it will. I think at some point it will, but, but it, it, Rufus, my sense is that NFL is much more efficient than college. Is that true? Yes. And if so, why? Yes, it is. It's a bigger market. I think that's the easiest way to say it. I mean, there's, there are higher limits. It's, there's, you know, I mean, I, I very much believe market efficiency is tied to the size of the market. And, and, you know, you could say the sophistication of people in it, but at the same time, if, if people are able to bet bigger money, they're going to, you know, so it's not just the number of betters; it's the it's the limits that they face, and so the stakes exactly because the big you stakes could, are what move lines. You could bet a hundred thousand dollars on an NFL side at a book um, on Sunday before the game. And what would the limit books. be on college? What What do you think? The although most some some although some books some books limit people to a hundred dollars on those too, um, but that's a whole <laughs> other another issue. That's a different the conversation. Sports betting landscape. All right, but college. Okay. Um, I, I believe college uh, twenty thousand or so. Okay, it okay. depends on where you're looking. Okay, um, so no, maybe that, fifty. Let's drop into some college and pro details here. I'm curious, especially about one one line. Um, if you the, people talk about one of the biggest games, it's a good college football weekend. It's a bad NFL football weekend. Um, college football, one of the biggest games is Arkansas going to Georgia. Georgia is you know, a clear top two team at this point, at least, you know, the opinions are, we think they are. Arkansas is one of the biggest surprises in the season. And we're going to find out like whether they're legit or not. You get excited about the game. And then you go look at the line. The line's like 18 points. So talk to us about Georgia minus 18 hosting Arkansas. Well, Georgia is, is the number one team in the Massey Peabody rankings right now. They, they supplanted Alabama by, you know, I think, by a fraction of a point, but yeah, still, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That, that's, which is pretty hard to do for us historically. I, I actually believe that number is a little bit too low. Um, I, we make it minus 20.97. Uh, so I don't actually have a bet on the game, but it is interesting. Uh, Kate actually messaged me before I re, before we recorded and asked if I have our, our no prior numbers, which will tell you. It's, it's a hybrid because we use priors to adjust for strike the schedule because if you didn't, you might, you know, you don't want to, you don't want rich, you don't want the University of Richmond or Bowling Green to be. So let me just, let me just say real Alabama. quickly that so, what you're saying is we have, I mean, these guys, I'm sitting here with two of the best Bayesians in the world here. And there, we talk about priors all the time. No one thought Arkansas was going to be good. They're one of the biggest surprises of the season. That means our current evaluation of them is, is, at least influenced by and possibly weighed down by those prior, those priors. And you're saying, Correct. well, we, we could just look at their in-season number. We can say if we didn't know anything about them when they came in the season, we only knew something about the difficulty of the opposition. What would we think of them? And so, go ahead. Oh, I was going to, I was just going to give you the numbers here. So uh, based on just the current season alone, we would say that George is 11 points better. Okay, so that's significantly on a neutral field. On a neutral field. Okay, so now, now Rufus is the question, and now Eric and Shane. Here's the question. All right, if we considered our preseason information and opinion, we'd say it would be Georgia minus twenty. If we chucked priors out altogether, we're going to say it's Georgia minus eleven, and that's a big edge. Hold on, this not minus eleven, not minus eleven. That's before home field advantage. So okay, so more like minus fourteen or something. Okay, still a big edge versus the market. 
Rufus, this is the reason I asked you about Arkansas before the show was I think it's a really interesting question on what you do with models. Arkansas, you can argue. So there's a brand new coach, guys. Last year was Pittman's first year as head coach there. He only played five games. So we're seeing them really for the first time. And Rufus and I are always struggling with new coaches. Like we ought to be able to do something different with new coaches. Here's my question, fellas. You've got a team that you're pretty sure your prior was wrong on. All right. You can, you can tell that you have, you know, the mechanisms, you know, the structural reasons why your prior was probably wrong. You've only learned it now, but that wrong prior is weighing down your opinions. Would you ever <laughs> say, no, 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 you wouldn't. Would you, but this is, but Rufus, this is what I'm asking. Would you ever adjust the prior after the fact? But another way to do it, Rufus, why are you looking at hybrid numbers then? Our hybrid number again is our in season number. Because aren't you I only looked at it because I only looked at it because you asked me to look at it. I don't use it for betting. Kate, you just wanted to know. So I, gave I wanted to know for this, but, but exactly. I, would say, I, w- I want to play the devil's advocate really quickly and yeah, say, yeah, please, no good. You, good. You're saying, you're saying, why can't be like, I, I, the other argument would be, well, Aren't, haven't they just overperformed? Shouldn't we expect some re- right. regression back towards what that's we right. expected in the first place? And that's, that's right. given, given, given we know how good the recruits were for the team. We, you know, right. We know the continuity of the program. Um, it's not like, I mean, maybe, you know, I don't know what Arkansas's recruiting classes in the past looked like. I mean, I, they're an SEC school, so they're not going to be awful, but you know, they clearly don't have the same talent that Georgia does. Mm-hmm. I don't think we can, and no, and no amount of, you know, I mean, just playing three good games or four good games. I don't even know how many games it's been. Um, so I, th- I think that's utterly four. fair. I, under, I understand the argument. I understand the argument. And I think it's utterly reasonable, but I think that's why it's interesting because it seems plausible that if the coach is truly doing something different than expected, that there might be a substantive shift there. And Eric and Shane, I'm kind of asking, can, what if, if you've got this model and, you've got a prior, you're observing some data. Would you ever have a model that's kind of yet another, another level essentially that says, if I see performance that's sufficiently outside of expectations, I'm going to adjust my prior to accommodate it in some sense. Would you ever, is there ever, is there ever such an update? It's kind of a way of putting your fingers on the scale but to do so in a more, you know, well, fine. Let me let me frame it in. Let me give. I'll give a short answer and then a a, a slightly longer answer, but still short too. No, but what I <laughs> you don't get to change your priors in that way. But what I would do, I probably have the wrong prior. So what I might want to do is have a multimodal prior to say it's one of two humps, and so it could be that Arkansas is this strength with this probability. And this, which I don't know the strength or the probability, and it's this strength with this probability, I'm going to estimate it from the data. Now, by allowing that multimodality, now that you observe the data, you're going to get a very different response because it's going to shift the probability towards the higher hump, which will reinforce what you're observing in the okay. data. Eric, so a couple things. One, you would only do that ex ante. You would never do it ex post based on your first answer, right? And then, I would never. I would create the prior ex ante, and then yeah, the, just, as, as part of the Bayesian system, it's going to weight the two possible humps of the prior appropriately. Eric, would you and ever? In this, in in the, the, and in this case, it, I was going to say, in this case, with the new coach in his second year, you could. There's a good argument there. I think Cade would think there's a good argument for you know there being more upside potentially, so, but also so more I, downside. Let me to be to be to to be clear. I'm not necessarily saying this is what I believe, but I think it's an interesting question. And I yeah, do think I mean, every few years, 
an exception like this comes up where you think it might actually make sense. Might, real quickly, Shane, let me just follow up one last thing. Eric, would you ever in football use like two modes, like a discrete categorical difference like that versus something continuous? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think as a prior, I, if there was some sort of massive shift like a new coach or we could argue that last year, you know, if we're using last year basically to form the prior, it depends how far a prior you're going to use. But if COVID year is your prior, then you could say, I really need to reflect the possibility that there's massive uncertainty there. So yeah. maybe, maybe yeah. so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I mean, I, I'll just follow up on that. I think it's a nasty habit to ex, uh, ex post, like go back to your start, start fudging around with your prior, certainly. <laughs> Um, I mean, there's other ways of also like, I mean, to a certain extent, putting your number on the scale besides the prior too. I mean, if there's really kind of thing, like covariate information, you you can build it into your model in other ways besides the prior as well, like like a new coach or some kind of change in recruiting class, et cetera. If you really feel like those are influential things, and that's why Arkansas, for example, is standing out, then that's a way to reappraise the rest of your model. Well, it's, 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 it's one more time of like, you, you don't go chasing these exceptions because we've, we've looked at modeling new coaches and it's hard to get traction off of that. Yeah. And it may be that every now and then a new coach makes a big difference, but you, it's hard to know ex ante, which ones will and which ones won't guys. We're out of time. We have to wrap this thing up. Rufus, thank you for being here. Thank you for updating us on uh, what's going on in the sports betting world. Wish you the best with unabated and enjoy your time out there in Las Vegas. Thank you guys for having me. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. It's Rufus Peabody. You can find him on Twitter at Rufus Peabody. You can also listen to him on his weekly podcast with Jeff Ma, Bet the Process. Bet the Process. A a fantastic listen if you're into the sports betting world. All right, guys. That has been another two hours of Wharton Moneyball, two hours of sports analytics. We do it every week here on SiriusXM. We appreciate your listening. For my co-host today, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen. For Audie Weiner, who's out doing Audie Weiner things. For Matty Dats, thanks for running the show, Matt. For Dion Simpkins, thanks for making it happen. Dion, thank you guys for listening. Come back and join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. <music> <laughs>